Everything Will Be Okay podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Simonov. So I should apologize for the delay um, in episodes because obviously there was not one last Tuesday, even though all the others have been pretty like clockwork. You know, every Tuesday there's a new podcast, but not last week. And I can tell you why. I was in the woods. I was camping and I had a lot of work to get off my plate before I could go do that thing where I live off the grid with my son and my husband and we hang out in a tent and we bike and we cook things over a fire and we don't look at our phones. Um, All of that needed some prep work so I did a lot of prep work and the thing that fell through the cracks is to uh, edit an entire episode of this podcast. Um, It's partly because my timing wasn't that great. I had uh, this week's interview way too close to the day where we left for camping. So I left myself, you know, not a lot of time. So that was just poor planning on my part. Oops, I'm really sorry. Um, But also, I think it's also I've become I had like a like a nature experience um, that I think was preceded by this first little bit um, where I ran out of time to edit the podcast. And I was like, you know what? My podcast is going to be late. Who cares? Who cares? I mean, it's not who cares. It's not that it means nothing. But like my new thing is just chilling out about things. I I don't know. I'm I'm like a deadline freak, which makes me a pretty good writer. And it makes me a really good uh, performer because I always showed up knowing my stuff. But um, sometimes deadlines are man-made, like my Tuesday podcast thing. That's what I decided to happen. So I can just as easily say, uh, not this Tuesday. I am in the woods drinking beer by a fire and it was great guys it was so great I even had like less uh, phone reception than I anticipated and so I took uh, a bit more time away from work than I actually anticipated and so I'm playing some mad catch-up right now but you know what it was it was totally worth it for the headspace Um, I forgot about COVID I forgot about face masks Uh, I didn't forget about hand sanitizer but, you know, camping is, is a very socially distant activity um, if you do it the way we do it, which is just as a family with a few um, well-known get, like guests, like family that we're, we're in a circle with, a social circle with. Um, so anyway, so we could just be normal. It was like you camp the same way during COVID as you do when you're not uh, in a pandemic. So it, it was amazing to just do something that was basically the same as how you would have done it in 2019 or any of the other years where you're not in a freaking pandemic. It was like slightly a shock to come back when we drove back and we finally get into downtown Toronto, which is where we live. And, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, masks. Oh, yeah, traffic. Oh, yeah, all this stuff. And like, I love living in the middle of the city. Um, but there's this thing happening to me. Maybe it's my age or I don't know. Maybe it's my husband finally like getting me to be an actual avid camper after like eight years of dragging me. Um, yeah, I, I'm like really sort of finding myself to be a woodsy person. I have I own hiking boots. Um, I have red flannel. I have a flat brim trucker cap that says Aloha. Um, yeah, I have like one of those giant disgusting sweaters that you can only find at Canadian Tire and they strangely smell like incense even if they're brand new. I have one of those. Um, my husband doesn't, doesn't really approve, but that's okay. That's okay. Um, anyway, all this is to say I was late on this week's podcast episode and I apologize, but I'm also not sorry because my new thing post-pandemic is to figure out what the F matters. And what matters is seeing my kid laugh uh, 
because a chipmunk filled its cheeks so big full of acorns or something or you know the joy of like <laughs> he was pretending he was a crow and so like he would hear a crow go car whatever and then he would imitate and it was just like the simplest little pleasure i loved it i do have a really cool guest um pair of guests actually this week Beth Morrison is the president and creative producer of Beth Morrison Projects, and Jekka Berry is the executive director. Beth Morrison Projects has been around since 2006, and their whole deal is about fostering um, new stuff, new opera. So they build relationships with these with these new creators, and their output is enormous. It's enormous. Like some of the items that uh, that pop out in my head are projects like Angel's Bone, Dog Days, Scarlet Ibis. Uh, their 21C leader abend. Um, and I mean, the the actual, the, the entire prototype festival is Beth Morrison Project's thing. Um, anyway, so I've had sort of this professional crush on Beth Morrison from afar uh, for a while. And I'm, I'm always just like impressed with people who just like seem to just put their head down and create and create and create. And that's, that's what they do over there. Um, of course, with COVID, they've been among the many opera companies who've had to turn to online. And you know what? They started putting out original content quite early. Like they started with some archival video, like they did an opera of the week for a while. Um, and then, but they've started putting out um, made for screen, like opera, new, new operas, like digital stuff. And they did that quite quickly. You know, there was stuff coming out by, I think, April, maybe May, but but quite soon after everything sort of hit the fan. And I figured, you know, leave it to Beth Morrison Projects to, to be some of the first out of the gate with original content. And it was really, really daring. It was like really pushing the boundaries of what opera would be. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of electronic music. There's, you know, definitely singing, but not what you would call opera singing. There are these sort of strange futuristic um all too real subject matters that you don't necessarily associate with opera, but you should. Um, anyway, it was interesting to talk with with these two amazing women about basically being hustlers in uh, a tough industry anyway, and obviously right now with COVID, it's quite tough. Um, but what struck me as most surprising about our conversation is how they admitted to just feeling like they were floundering like everyone else. Um, I think the cool difference is that even though they felt like they were floundering, they just kept putting out work. And that's that's the thing. That's the whole thing with putting, with fostering new art, especially kind of niche art like opera, is you just, like, qu- my teacher, John Hess, like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, he told me about, especially you know, the new opera scene in Canada, which seems so touch and go, like you, so, you see so many new operas and not all of them really get to you. And so you, you get kind of fatigued by all this stuff. And he says, you know, Jenna, qua- like quantity begets quality. This is, you know, Verdi wrote tons of operas and we only do a few of them. Same with Mozart, same with Puccini. Like you have to put out quantity of content. And from that quantity there, you, you find the cream of the crop, the quality, the stuff that sticks for whatever reason. And so I think it's so brave when I find out about places like Beth Morrison Projects where, you know, it's hard to put out content anyway, and then they just go ahead in the middle of a pandemic and and start putting out digital content that with a ticketed option, like it's a paid model. Um, they're still doing it. They're doing live events and they've got, you know, stuff available to view on their website. And it's just so comprehensive so quickly 
that I thought it was a no-brainer. I was like, well, yeah, they've been doing this kind of thing anyway, so it's not just it's not a huge shift. Um, but apparently, like they felt it as a huge shift, and they felt, you know, Beth was saying that her nerves were a bit racked for, um, you know, quote unquote, opening night of some of this digital content, more so than for for some of her traditional live stuff, you know. And and I figured, you know, that's that's always amazing when you find out that people are just freaking out, but but they're trucking on ahead. They're like, whatever, I'm scared, but they're but they're being brave. You can be scared and brave at the same time. I figure. Um, anyway, I ramble because obviously I still have this professional crush on Beth Morrison and now on Jekka Berry because they they just sort of keep their heads down doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing, which is creating art. Um, yeah. So it was it was really cool to talk to them. They're obviously very chill people, so much cooler than I could ever hope to be. And um, but they were kind enough to lend me an hour of their time. So anyway, I hope you enjoy and I hope you go check out BethMorrisonProjects.org. Um, consider donating or check out some of their ticketed options because this is like this is this is an example of what we're what we've been craving, what I've been craving. This is stuff that's created for this new medium, not as an act of desperation, but as sort of a catalyst for thinking creatively in a new way. So um, yeah, here's me talking with Beth Morrison and Jekka Berry. Enjoy. So, I mean, how are you guys just as people? How are your moods? How's it been going since March, I suppose? Um, it's, it's a challenging time. You know, we, uh, were about a week into what was meant to be, um, about six weeks of pretty nonstop touring of different projects around the country. So we had, uh, half of our team was in Los Angeles, um, on its way, on our way to San Diego. Another portion of our team were in DC. Um, and then the world got shut down and, um, you know, we had, uh, it was about 10 days of just cancellation after cancellation after cancellation and and triage. And so I think that, uh, you know, for me, um, it, it, it started as just an absolute moment of, um, of just working as much as I and as fast as we possibly could to cancel travel and, you know, have conversations with presenters, um, which which made me quite depressed very fast. Um, yeah. And, you know, and then there was a moment, it took a while for me um, to really move from that to being able to, to look forward and to start uh, thinking about new ideas for what we're doing and, um, you know, settling into not traveling and being in one place and, you know, isolated um, and, and then, you know, sort of being able to think about how we can embrace the moment um, and that has been so much better. Like that has just lifted my mood uh, so much. And you know, it's it's a roller coaster right now. It's just a roller coaster. Yeah, I believe it. But Beth, how about you? Um, yeah, I mean, Jekka really sort of said it for both of us. I mean, uh, went from being just utter despair for you know ten ten tours being canceled and. Um, about a third of our income, you know, being lost for the year. Um, and, you know, that sort of just chaos of that moment, um, as Jekka explained it, and then, you know, moving out of it. And I think we turned a page at the beginning of June. Um, I think it was like kind of when we finished 
I think mourning for the losses and um, and straightening out uh, the finances and um, and uh, serving our artists in every way possible um, to then you know really kind of look ahead and and once we turned the page. Um, to look ahead and be creative in this moment, moment, um, a lot of wonderful things started to happen, and we started working with artists again, and we started paying artists for the work, which, of course, you know, everyone is desperate right now for funds. So, um, you know, it feels good to be contributing um, to uh, to the livelihood of artists, as well as um, now, you know, really working on a very creative track for BMP in a world that we're very um, unsure of ourselves in. Um, this digital world is something that we're trying to learn platforms for and create programming for that is quite different than what we're normally doing. Um, and mm-hmm. that's a big challenge for us. Um, and it's good to be challenged, I think, um, because I think it's easy, you know, I've been, I've been in this business 15 years and I consider myself and BMP to be seasoned producers. And, um, and now we're producing in a medium that's not our own and, you know, all of the anxiety and all of the, uh, learning curve um, is very, very real for us. <laughs> Definitely moments of feeling like we're baby producers again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, just as an observer, like I've been keeping an eye on what has come out of various companies and like, it seems like you guys started producing original content pretty fast. Like after things shut down, like some of, I know some of it was archival or like past productions, but there's been like some new stuff happening for months now. Yeah, we were one of the first out of the gate in like in at the middle of March to start streaming work um, from our archive, and um, you know we did that of course for the same reason that everybody else has done, which is you know we feel it's important for the art form to be out there. We think it's important for the artists we work with, their work to be out there, and for our company to continue to be a vital. Uh, source of of this work and um, you know the artists were very generous and um, and willing to let us stream the work and um, but you know after a couple of months and starting to understand like what is happening you know and and that this is not a two-month pandemic but that this is you know can could go on for months and people's livelihoods were decimated it became very clear to us that um you know we needed to actually start creating content and start paying the artists and so we're not doing any archival streaming anymore um and perhaps we'll return to that at some point um and pay you know proper royalties for the artists to do it. Um, but at the moment, we think that um, engaging artists to create work also empowers them and makes them feel heard and alive doing what they do. And, yeah. you know, our team, our whole staff, it, it was so, it became so quickly apparent how hungry the whole team was to be brainstorming and like thinking, you know, our team is not used to sitting around doing nothing. And, um, and so the conversation very quickly became, 
you know, what can we be doing in this medium? How can we, how can we be learning this, 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 these platforms? Um, and like, what are the ideas that can, we can be putting out there to, um, you know, to provoke artists, to get them thinking um, about, you know, this moment and what they want to be putting out into the world and just like figuring that out together. Yeah. I mean, it just sort of seems like of all the hurdles I can think of that prevent an opera company, even like, you know, a more like sort of traditional company, like the Met or appear the Canadian Opera Company or something, all the stuff that it would take them to move to producing new content online, the, all the hurdles, they seem to just be non-issues for you guys or something, or like you just have like a team that's, you know, putting your priorities differently. I, I'm, I'm feeling like the, the heels dig in about uh, uh, for larger companies having to pivot entirely. It's like they just they really want to hold on until it's back to normal, quote unquote, or back the way they're comfortable doing it. I mean, well, I think that so, yeah. Uh, no, I was just going to say that I think, you know, as a small company um, that uh, doesn't have all of the layers of bureaucracy and um, and union negotiations that the large companies have, it's much easier for BMP to pivot and, um, and to move forward, uh, you know, quickly um, because we don't have those layers of encumbrances. And yeah, I think yeah. we're also... Um, just used to there not being a normal. I, you know, our our company um, is about developing new work, and every process for developing a new piece is is different. And um, so, for our team, I don't think that there's there's no digging in the heels because there's no one way that something has to happen. And um, so, I think that that flexibility is actually like just built into the fabric of the company already. And like, yes, this was a bigger change than, than we are used to, um, but it didn't feel uh, so out of the box that, that um, it felt impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the sort of specific ripple effect um, because of the sort of mission of, of BMP being for emerging or sort of new composers or new works? Like what's the what's the ripple effect on getting new works going? Like what's the time frame in normal circumstances from like idea to commission to opening night kind of thing. And what does all this do to that process? Um, well, the typical time frame for, um, for, a, you know, um, a large evening length chamber opera or, um, or a music theater piece is typically anywhere from two to five years um, from idea to stage. I think typical is three years. Um, and uh, because of all our cancellations um, coming up with this coming season, um, we are in a little bit of a log jam with the, the work that has been in the pipeline. And so, um, you know, pretty, almost everybody's in this, in the same position where, you know, work is shifting from 2021 to 21, 22. And then all of the things that, you know, were scheduled subsequently are being backed up a year. And, um, and so it's, you know, it, it's definitely affecting um, a lot. Um, and the new work that we're commissioning for the digital platform, we're doing, you know, like two weeks basically of, of, of work on them and then they go up. So it's a very different kind of a platform and environment. Um, we're not, um, 
we're not yet anyways commissioning new music for these speakeasies. We're using, um, you know, existing music. And so, uh, so we're able to put them up much faster. We're also doing shorter um, evenings. Uh, so, you know, anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes um, and maybe even shorter. We'll see as we roll out some of our other programming, like our music videos. So, um, yeah. yeah. Do you feel as though it's in competition with new things, like, like a different competition? Like it's now kind of more in direct competition with things like Netflix because everyone's getting their media from the same source right now? You know, I think that um, I think that there is an audience for lots of different types of work, and I think that there is um, a specific audience that is used to going to the theater and going to the opera multiple times a week. Um, that is hungry for an experience that makes them feel like they're sitting in the theater, and I don't think Netflix covers that. Um, and so, you know, I think that there is there is a specific audience that is looking to really explore what's available in this digital realm. And I certainly hope that um, that what comes out of this is really like a, a democratization of the art form, you know, of, of opera, that it's reaching more people and um, and that it is uh, it is, you know, breaking down some of those preconceived notions of what opera in an opera house is. I know that it's a lot of like opera specifically has this group of its fandom that, you know, is, I guess, purist is the word, you know, like it's not, they're not, they're, they're significantly less interested in seeing even their favorite operas on like on screen as opposed to, to live. Like, I guess there's really nothing, if that's the preference, it's not really any, anything anyone can do, but how do you, like, what's the process of creating something that, like you say, makes people feel like they're in the theater? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've been actually, you know, talking about a lot. And and to me, like the whole thing about being online, the question is the question of the audience. Um, and so, you know, we we're doing our speakeasies as live events. There's all these kind of live things that people are doing. Um and then there are other things that are being done. You wonder, okay, well, why was that live? Um, because there was no real reason for it, right? Like if you can pre-record something, you have the ability to make it perfect. Um, when you're in a live moment, anything can go wrong. And it does, um, particularly when you're working with technology that you don't understand yet. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think um, it's... <laughs> it's something that um, we have to have to come to an answer about. And so for us, like we're thinking about that a lot, like how does the audience um, interact with us in this medium? What is the, you know, what are, what are we putting forward where people feel included and, and having a different experience because we can't replicate the experience of being live in a theater. We can't replicate that. And that has its own thing that everybody loves, which is just, you know, the, the sort of intangible of that, which is breathing together with, you know, 200 other people or 4,000 other people. Um, and, you know, having the performer there where you hear, you know, the the sonic language that they're, they're putting out, um, you know, in the, in the room and not, you know, 
filtered through some digital device um, and you're getting the energy from the performer to the audience and all of those intangible things that um, happen in a live situation. So we can't do that. That's not, not possible. So then what can we do? Um, that isn't us turning into a film producer, you know, that there is some element of it being live and we need to understand and provoke what that means and, um, and create a, a platform that, um, that is a hybrid of something. Yeah, I suppose this is the season of new genres or something. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Have you gotten, like, what kind of feedback or, or reception have you gotten to the online content from your audience? Uh, it's been good. You know, we, so far we've launched uh, two digital initiatives. Um, we have launched our Speakeasy series. Um, and that is really, you know, it's, it's for a very small audience. It's a limited number of performances. And again, playing with the idea of how do you have uh, a performance experience that feels very live and um, and so there's you know interactive elements to the to the pieces to the speakeasies um, and for us it's an experiment you know each one has a different director um, and different performers and different concepts uh, and we're super open to allowing those directors to really lead us uh, wherever they want to go and play around in this in this medium. So that's been, I think, really exciting. Um, at, you know, for instance, the first one was uh, incredibly high tech. There was so much. There was, you know, uh, digital animations and and. 3D environments, and um, whereas this next one that's coming up next week um, is going to be completely different and very stripped down and um, and more of a meditation actually than uh, than a bar scene, um, and so you know that's that's been really fun to try and experiment and, and give some space, um, and then our producers academy that we launched, uh, we did a three day free workshop uh, last week, um, and we had 700 people sign up. Uh, in wow. 15 countries. Um, and so that was like incredible for us. And we were um, so excited to see the response that, you know, in this moment, there are arts administrators and producers and artists who are really interested in, in learning what it is to produce and expand their skill sets. Um, so the responses so far, I think, have been uh, overwhelmingly positive, um, you know, and then with our archival work, uh, we had such a great, you know, regular number of viewers every week for, for our, for our uh, operas. Um, and we were able to partner with LA Opera uh, for uh, some of the, the streams, including Angel's Bone, um, which we, you know, was one of our canceled projects. It was supposed to be uh, in LA uh, in May. Um, and, and so we did, you know, a, a streaming uh, co-presentation co with Ali Opera and 22,000 people watched it, um, which was, you know, just astonishing. You know, had we done a live show, it would have been about 1,200 people who's, who would have seen it. Um, so that, that was just an incredible response for us. Yeah. Yeah, I had just done, I just finished, I was writing a feature on Royce Fabric. Um, yeah. For the listeners, um, for the listeners, the connection is Royce Fabric is the librettist for Angel's Bone. Mm -hmm. um, and he he was in Toronto to do his his opera, Jacqueline. And so I met him in person before all this. And then I did a follow-up on WhatsApp in March. Um, and 
And then I was texting him while I was watching Angel's Bone. I was like, what are you doing to me? Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> He's like, well, it's not just me. I'm like, well, yeah, but but you're the person I have on WhatsApp. So, I mean, but it was, it's strange. Like, I think I, because I did, I did write about it and I just, I, I've been really like soaking up all the online content, especially their archival stuff, because I love traditional opera and it's a chance for me to see stuff I definitely wouldn't be able to see just because I can't travel everywhere, but not, but like most of it doesn't grab me. I don't expect it to grab me as though I'm live, but like there's something about setting a certain bar for pieces that do grab me anyway, like mm-hmm. and the same for breaking the waves. I don't know, maybe I'm just like on a Vavrik thing. But like, it seems to be, there's a certain type of piece that it doesn't really matter about the medium. Mm. Like, it's hard to pinpoint that ahead of time, maybe. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say because I I know the live experience of both of those pieces so intimately. So it's it's hard for me to, to, to say. I mean, obviously, the way I think of it is that, you know, looking at it on a screen is, you know, maybe 60% of the live experience. Um, But the fact that you came to those pieces, you know, without having had the live experience and responded so um, strongly to them in such a great way, uh, you know, makes me, makes me pause and consider. Yeah. Well, it seems to be like, you know, it's hard to say that this is now the bar for composers and librettists, like that you have to write something that's good enough on any medium. I, I'm not sure that that's fair to say, but it's definitely something to consider right now, as I guess, as a producer, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, um, that you know, I think is part of that is like, is the work amplified? <laughs> um, and if it's not amplified, like, are you are you putting microphones on bodies to get a decent recording? Because otherwise, forget it. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll just add that, you know, I think it's also a moment to recognize that there are opportunities on digital platforms that there aren't uh, on a live stage, you know? And so we have pieces that are in development um, and we are stopping to ask, you know, oh, should this piece continue on its developmental path um, towards a, a live premiere, or should we be actually reconsidering this piece and building something for the digital platform, whether that's a film um, or some other, uh, you know, version of it? Um, and so I think it's an interesting moment to be sort of asking those questions for each piece that we have in development. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like a source of stress or, or insecurity or anything for the artists? Like I'm thinking of the composer or the, the singers, like to, to sort of pivot the idea of how this piece is going to be presented? Well, I, I don't think that any, I, I don't think that we would ever force it on anyone. Um, they would have to be 100% behind it and excited by the medium um, to do it. So, uh, you know, we are so firmly... Uh, producers that believe that um, you know the artist is, is leading, and we need to um, we need to be hand in hand with them. Um, so uh, we've we've put out a couple of of um, suggestions for pieces to some of our artists in order to make those changes, and and now it's a conversation. Yeah, I just wonder. I, I always consider the composer this sort of eternal purist, but I know that's not actually true. And I talk to actual composers they they seem to be pretty open to like their music sounding different you know and, I, and they're also you know 
such incredibly creative artists. So I think that um, for some composers, the idea of trying trying an experiment in a new medium is actually really exciting for them, right? So it's it's not it doesn't come from a place of fear; it comes from a place of possibility. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you both about there's sort of it's two questions, but I, they're kind of linked, and I hope you understand what I mean when when I explain. It's sort of I, I want to ask you about the role of the arts right now because I've sort of been trying to answer that question for myself since March, I suppose. I, you know, it started when I when things in the first weeks we would hear we would see little videos of people you know washing their hands while singing or like singing from a balcony or any sort of like this little very lo-fi, low budget, like it's just me and here's some singing because we all could use a smile right now. And I found myself like questioning what's the point of that because I was feeling very cynical at the time. But I do want to kind of answer that question for opera. Like what is what is the function or um, the role of opera and theater today? Um, and now the question is deeper because now I'm asking you know, what is wrong with opera's PR problem right now or opera's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's being asked to confront some issues that are pretty overdue. And so it's making me ask the question anew, like, what is the role of opera? How do we, what do we think opera is? Because I don't think everyone's first instinct would be to look at your work. I think the, the traditional, like the stereotypes persist for the general public. I don't know yeah. what you guys think about that. Well, I think we both have a lot of feelings on that. So we probably should both answer that question. Yeah. Um, uh, from my perspective, um, I think that what opera can do um, always, but particularly maybe in, in moments of challenging times, um, is to provide, um, provide, provide a medium for uh for voices to be heard, right? For um, for a reflection of the human experience, um, and people choose to reflect, you know, their values. So I think the question around opera's values is a very important one. Um, you know, we're living in a, in a moment of wokeness that I think is has been such a long time in coming for classical music. And, you know, we require systemic change for this art form to uh, be, be a, you know, something for um, the, the population of, of people that live in this country and around the world, not just the white people. Um, it, you know, it has been a white supremacist art form. And I think people are really looking at that. And, um, you know, I really do think this is a real moment of change. I'm seeing it happen. Maybe that's partly because of the pandemic and people, things have slowed down. So people actually have an opportunity to to think about that and to really, um, you know, think deeply about it and what it means for change in their own organization. Certainly we're doing that at BMP. Um, you know, we've been known for being um, an organization that is, uh, you know, trying to turn the art form on, on its head and in lots of different ways. And for us, that has also been in, you know, the presentation um, and support of, of 
artists of color um, and women, which, you know, also women have a hard time in, in the classical arts field as well in many respects. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it's a moment of change and I think it's a good moment. I feel very optimistic that that the systemic change that needs to happen um, has a chance um, to happen now. Um, and then the art form will always, you know, it's music and it's theater and telling stories through those mediums have the ability to change minds and hearts as well. Um, and, uh, and I feel like, um, it, you know, that's going to continue. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see the death knoll of, of opera in this time, um, or of the arts for that matter, but, but certainly, um, we're in a really difficult moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, you know, had those moments early on um, during lockdown of of questioning, like, is this where, you know, I personally should be spending my time and energy, because it feels like there are so many huge problems in the world. Um, and, and my role within, you know, the sector of arts feels so small, and inconsequential. But ultimately, you know, I think that the arts sort of came out of that. Uh, and I think that the arts are how we process and they are actually like really interwoven into how we process. And it's processing um, the problems of the world. It's being able to um, see something on a stage or in a digital platform that makes you consider um, an issue or uh, a story in a way that you may not have um, in another medium. And I think it's so, so, so important to this moment. I think that being able to um, uh, amplify voices that are um, are in these incredibly beautiful ways um, being guides for us of like how, how, how to feel, how to heal as well. Um, and how to, you know, move through this moment and be able to see a future for ourselves that's better. And I think that the arts are really, really uh, uh, so integral to the way that we do that. Um, so, you know, I come out of this feeling incredibly hopeful um, and certainly, you know, talking to artists about how, about the work that they are now interested in, in creating that is totally reflecting this moment. Um, and I'm so excited to see where those conversations lead us. Um, you know, and then in terms of like the, I think that calling it a PR problem for, for opera um, feels too surface level. It's, it's a problem with opera um, and it is, it's so deep, you know, it's a problem with the history of opera and the evolution of opera um, and the current state of opera. And I think that it's, great that there is this reckoning happening and that um that that there is a a recognition that that the industry as a whole has not done enough or tried hard enough and um and if you know this moment is like it's this amazing um uh confluence of like having a moment where all of these companies are paused right they're not they're not in production um and so and so there's this moment of like actually being able to take a breath and reflect and also you know having this incredible like social uprising 
and recognition of the problems in the opera world, you know, it, it's like that is happening at a moment when companies can actually consider it. And so I feel really hopeful that those two things happening simultaneously will allow the, the field to pivot in a way that it, I think, wouldn't were it not for the fact that, that everything is paused right now. Yeah, I, I was just speaking to a handful of companies that because everything is paused for them, they've been hosting these panels on on race and representation in the opera industry. Um, some of them are private and some of them they're putting out as part of their online content, but they've all been saying, you know, like, we we do have time to think about this and because everyone is so loudly thinking about it, like you can't really focus on anything else without looking completely tone deaf, mm-hmm. you know. Exactly. And I, I guess I've been, I've because I've not, it's not like I'm on the phone with Peter Gelb every day or anything, um, or like any of his similar people around the world, but I get the sense that there's a bit of like exasperation from the large companies sort of like, you know, throwing out like the roster of like, we have been hiring black people. We did Porgy and Bess, <laughs> that kind of thing. Like this sort of, What's the difference between that and what you're talking about? Well, I think it's I think it's thinking deeply about what the issues are and and having um, and and being truthful with what the the art form is and has been historically for hundreds of years and who it has served and who it hasn't served. Um, and I think uh, you know for the larger companies like the Met, the Met is you know. My, the Met is primarily in the business um, of being a museum um, and holding these hundreds of years of, of the tradition. Um, and, and that's necessary, that we need that museum. We need museums, right? Um, and they do what they do better than any, any other organization um, because they have the ability to produce at that scale. But... Um, but it's not enough anymore, um, and and I, I my my hope will be that the Met will really look internally at what they can do to lead the field um, of of grand opera, and um, and what needs to change to be able to do that, and how we tell the stories and who we're putting on as the directors and the, the conductors and, you know, the, all the designers, it goes very deep. It's, you know, opera has sort of had colorblind casting for decades. It's, it's, it's not so much about not, you know, the casting of things, it, but it has to be so much deeper and broader than that. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like it seems silly to limit the stories that you're going to tell. I'm not going to say that the Met as an entity has decided, you know, it's this, this, you know, spectrum, this part of the spectrum of storytelling, we're going to stick to this, even though there's this very broad opportunity for us. But that's what it seems to me, like, even when I sort of notice in my own lifetime, you know, on TV and film, I'm seeing more TV and film that feature non-white stories and non-white actors. And all it means is I'm meeting incredible actors that I didn't know about before for whatever reason. Well, the um, Met is going to do Terrence Blanchard's piece, um, and I believe that that has been in place uh, well before the rioting that happened this spring um, and yeah, yeah. needs to happen. So I think they they are thinking um, in an, in a different way, and I applaud them for for 
taking a step in the direction. And I hope that they continue to do that and that, you know, they set the example for um, the fields. Yeah. I mean, I've been sensing, this is an oversimplification, but I've been sensing they're, they're sort of on one end of the, the argument, people who are talking about the changes that need to happen in classical music and opera. There are, are there's a group of people who are of the mind, you know, we should shelve these old pieces. Like they, they're done. They've, they've done what they've like the traditional stuff, like, you know, Handel operas or Notte di Figaro or Turandot or something, these real staples of, of the opera tradition, we should throw it all out and start anew. Um, there's another group of people that say, no, 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 don't throw them out. We need to protect them because they, they exist in a certain context that doesn't necessarily mean that they have, you know, evil intent or racist intent, even like in that range, where do you think you fall or, or what do you think we do with the old potentially problematic pieces that are so revived everywhere? I mean, I think that it, it's trying to find a middle ground. You know, I think that there are pieces that are incredibly problematic and probably should be thrown out. But I also think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of contextualization that can happen, recognizing, like Beth said, that, that there is a place for them in the museum, right? Um, what my hope would be is that, that if, the, if, if organizations are deciding to keep those in the repertoire um, and keep performing them, that they are balancing that out with an equal number of new works that are um, you know, telling stories of today from a whole new set of voices that are not, have not been uh, part of that traditional canon. And so I think that, that for me, it feels like it should be a balance, um, recognizing that, that there is a lot of value in the traditional canon, even, even within some of the pieces that are more problematic. But the, there's also, there should be so much more space given to the new works and the pieces that um, I think are going to resonate with audiences differently and, and elevate um, incredible voices of today. Mm-hmm. Are there any pieces that just you personally, you don't want to shelve? Like they, they're part of the traditional canon that, um, you know, like one of my ones that I'm hesitant to admit is Madame Butterfly. Like I, it's absolutely full of problems, but for some reason the story gets me every time. Um, I don't know if that'll always be the case, but it's true right now. But are there any pieces that, that you, you see some, some hope in or that you want to hang on to even though they're part of that canon? Um, I mean, from my perspective, um, I, you know, I think that the, you know, the whole of music history from Handel to, uh, I don't know, maybe Rock on and on. I personally love a lot of that music and, um, but I'm not, I don't feel connected to it. Um, once you sort of roll past that, there are, you know, a number of absolutely extraordinary works of the 20th century that um, I think are so relevant um, and so important. But I'm really a minority voice. You know, most people get, get into opera because they love that canon that exists. And like I said, I, I love so much of it. I mean, Don Giovanni is one of the most extraordinary pieces musically and dramatically. I think it's incredible. Do I think it should be performed? Well, there's a real question because you know what? 
he treats women really badly. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets his comeuppance in the end. And so maybe that's okay. And, and that, that was Mozart's point. Um, but you know, they, there are, I mean, almost every piece in piece in the canon is problematic in some way. If you really want to poke at it through the lens of a 21st century person, um, you know, so I, you know, I will, I will, you know, just sort of rest on what I said before. I think that these pieces have a place in in history, and they have a place in the museums, and they need to be done. But just as Jekka said, you know, that's not enough. If you're going to do those, you need to also balance it with a new repertoire that is being built. And BMP, we've been building our canon of you know works by diverse composers and artists for 15 years, but we're doing it. Um, you know, in a chamber size scale, we need the big companies to do it on the grand opera scale. And some of them are, but it's, it, it, it needs to happen. It needs to happen more. Yeah. When I ask people about, you know, why that doesn't happen more, I, a common thing is, is boards of directors and subscribers and like the word risk gets thrown out there. Like it's a risk to do more than one 20th century piece in a season. You know, I know that's not how it is over in your company, but but that's the sort of, you know, a, a place like up in Canada, like a, a company like Calgary Opera, which is a fixture of the Canadian scene, but it's it's not as big as the Canadian Opera Company. But like their season really reflects that if they're going to do something that's from the 20th or 21st century, the rest of the season is definitely Barber of Seville right. and Tosca. Well, you know, I think that this is, you know, what a number of companies still, you know, sort of suffer from. Um, and but there are also a number of companies who have moved their audience along so that the new piece is going to sell better than the, you know, the Madam Butterfly, if you will. Um, yeah. So I do think that things are moving in the right direction. Um, I think in general, you know, boards are risk averse. And that it's, they're the fiduciary, you know, they're responsible for the fiduciary health of the company, ultimately. And so I understand where that comes from. Um, Jack and I have a, you know, we have a way of working, which is, we've and we've developed a board that supports that, which is, you know, we are artistically risky, but fiscally conservative. Um, and that has helped us to be a successful company um, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, there seems to be like, sorry, Jekka, go ahead. Um, that I think that, you know, my feeling on this is that, that, you know, if a company is interested in moving into doing more contemporary work, it does take a commitment of multiple years. You know, you have to give your audience time to adjust, but also to like reach new audiences. Um, you know, the, our amazing partnership with LA Opera, um, you know, we're part of their off-grand series. Um, and the statistic that I absolutely love is that the first piece we did with them, which was uh, David Little and uh, Roy Staverick's Dog Days, um, you know, small, uh, small black box theater, but 70% of the audience that came to see Dog Days was new to LA Opera. They had never been to a main stage production. And, um, and that, you know, the hope with Off Grand is that you're then 
creating basically a feeder program, people who are interested in uh, dipping their toe into opera, but might be interested in a piece which is, you know, highly theatrical um, and, you know, a chamber piece that is contemporary. Um, but ultimately, they will end up going to, you know, the, the main stage. And LA Opera is now doing, you know, many uh, new works on their main stage as well. So I think that, that you have to take, you have to understand that your audiences need to go on a journey with you um, and, and give that the space that it needs. Yeah. Well, the thing is, especially with like, I mean, it's not the, like breaking the waves is a great example, or even like the shining over at Minnesota, like, because again, I, I talked to Michael Christie a while back when he was um, at Minnesota and he was just saying the audience for the shining first of all, it sold better than their Traviata, like you were saying earlier. Um, but a lot of them came because of course they have this, they, they had, they know the story. Right. And dog days, I would, I don't know if it's necessarily like a very mainstream story, but something like breaking the waves might be, or people might have a, basically a way into this show. Um, but Minnesota that- is a really good example because they have brought their audience along for years and years and years and years yeah. to yeah, yeah. come to new opera. You know, that's what their audience wants. And so they're a great example of, you know, doing it over time. Um, and I, you know, sure, does The Shining resonate with the general public better than, certainly better than Dog Days, but I would, I would have a guess that's also probably about breaking the waves, um, you know, of, of course, but, um, but what you're trying to do is develop an audience that is curious and is going to show up no matter what you're putting on the stage. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of trust that needs to go in there. For sure. Yeah. Um, a colleague of mine pointed out the difference between, uh, people who are into opera, the art form, which I would put you guys in that box and people who are in, into the world of uh, the culture of opera going. Mm. Um, and she put it in, she was saying that like people who are into the culture of opera going are very pessimistic right now. Um, but people who are into the art form are feeling very driven or, you know, or they're going on this sort of similar roller coaster that you guys were talking about, but they're not pessimistic about the future of opera Hmm. that's interesting yeah and so i think like if you're someone who's about going to the opera as an activity um which i'm coming to the realization that i might be a little bit part of that person because i miss you know meandering through a lobby during an intermission um although i like to see all sorts of things but but people who are into creating opera they seem to be very, very driven, like more than I expected them to be under these circumstances. And maybe that's because they're all about the art form and they don't really care about the culture or they're interested in how the culture will change with the art form. I mean, I think it's, it's I feel incredibly optimistic and I think it's because um, there is a collective moment uh, of innovation available to us. You know, it's, it's, um, again, like having this paused moment means uh, that everybody has to rethink everything. And there are enormous challenges that come with that and uh, certainly moments of despair, but also like what an incredible amount of possibility is open to us, both in terms of digital, but also like, um, you know, a moment to reimagine 
uh, what what a stage is, right? Even even for live performance, is it in a park now? Is it um, you know uh, on a truck? Is it you know? There's all of these incredible opportunities. I think um, to just rethink all of the um, traditions and all of the uh, the sort of constraints that we thought existed um, and just change everybody's expectations. Um, and to me, that just feels like uh, a, a, a beautiful, beautiful moment of opportunity right now. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering just um, not necessarily with your professional hats on, but just as people in the middle of a pandemic, like, are there things that are silly or definitely non-essential that you found yourself really missing or craving? Like something insistent that won't go away? <laughs> That's a funny question to think about. That. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I will say the thing that I just miss more than anything is is going to see live performance. You know, uh, yeah. it, it's not the silly thing, but it is the thing that I truly, truly miss. And um, you know, as somebody who would see when I wasn't, you know, working on productions, going to see three, four, five shows a week. Um, it feels like a, such a huge loss to my equilibrium um, uh, and sort of, you know, being quiet and having evenings at home is, is a whole new thing for me. So that's my not yeah. silly answer, but I'll, I'll come up with a silly one too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel of course the same way as Jacka does, but um, I'm, I'm not sure if this is silly or not, but I think the thing that I probably miss is... Um, well, not probably. The thing that I definitely miss the most is going to a real gym. Um, and I don't know if that's yeah. silly, but it, my my I'm someone who goes to the gym every day uh, under normal circumstances, and I am so sick of having to do videos and walking yeah. outside and you know all of these things. So that is the thing I miss every single day. Yeah. What? Just because I'm curious, what videos do you do? Um, I do a variety of videos. Um, I'm doing a lot of yoga, power yoga right now, Baron Baptiste. Um, I'm doing a lot of Pilates right now with Boho Beautiful. Um, and I'm doing um, uh, uh, Jillian Michaels, um, who kicks my ass. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That, those are good tips. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of different types of yoga, and I'm a little bit bored. Not really bored, but a little bit. Yeah, I've gotten obsessive about running. Um, that's my yeah. I, it's because it's the thing that takes me away from my computer and uh, a digital screen and gets me sort of out of my head a little bit and and out uh, outside as well. That's yeah, I've become super obsessed. Yeah, I've become one of those people who runs with a stroller. Ah, like, yeah. it's very it's a little bit obnoxious, but I did. I was like when we bought it, I was like, you know, what? I'm totally going to jog with a baby. Absolutely. <laughs> but it took till the pandemic for me to do it. Yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> now we have it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like it seems like a silly thing. I, I have huge admiration for what you're doing and I, like your company and you as individuals have like come up so many times, especially like when I talk with Royce, like he's just like, she's amazing. Talk to her, talk to, talk to the company. Like everyone just needs to know what's going on over there. And I have a lot of excitement over the fact that there seems to be a lot of overlap between companies who are 
finding inspiration amid everything and companies who are innovative already. Mm. And of course, it makes complete sense that those two go hand in hand. But it's exciting for me to consider that the people who will come out, you know, on top, if there's an on top to be considered, um, are companies like yours. And um, up in Canada, I consider it also Tapestry Opera. They have a similar, they have a similar mission, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, And they've been, they've been championing new stuff since well before everything got upended. Um, Absolutely. So it's, it's interesting that you guys sort of admitted at the beginning that you felt unsure or like your baby producers again. It seems like you were just like, yep, yeah, we're just going to do more of the same. Here's some stuff online. That's like, funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as a consumer, anyway, I was like, of course, well, of course. Yeah. I have. It, it, you know, opening night is always terrifying, no matter what. But I, the opening night of Speakeasy last, last week, I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's also because people on the internet are horrible. Yes, that's true. I find. <laughs> like if you put anything out, especially awesome. something that you have a bit of, you know, soul or connection to, like, you know. I, people... We've been lucky, honestly. Like, I feel like BMP's been lucky in that regard. Like, you know, probably jinxing us now. But, like, um, <laughs> I think people have been kind and realized that we're trying to come at this from an authentic place. Um, and what more can you do? Well, it helps that there's already been momentum. Like yeah. it's not, you know, it doesn't matter if, if it's, it's not like a fresh pivot, you know, it's, it's working with something that's been already woven into what you guys do, it seems like. And those are the companies that I see, that I see doing really cool stuff and sort of, there's no ego and there's no expectation and there's no, you know, white knuckling to the tradition. Yeah, Exactly. It definitely feels like a time to experiment, though I, I it was so funny during the first speakeasy realizing that um, you can then you can now see all of the audience and you can see every reaction they're having. Right. <laughs> also, yeah, we're you pick up their cell phone and are bored. <laughs> now you're like, you've lost them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know the world is completely changed now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I ask all my guests because it's the title of the podcast. Um, so Beth and Jekka, will everything be okay? Huh. Um, yes, whatever that means, things will be what they will be. I don't know that okay is the is the answer I would say. Um, they will be changed and uh, and hopefully that change will be for the better. Yeah, there's this incredible history um, of pandemics in the world. And in fact, there's, um, you know, it's been sort of shown that uh, more than world wars uh, or anything else, pandemics have the ability to change society. Um, you know, the middle class was, was born out of a pandemic. Um, and, and I think that I mean, I, I'm hopeful that everything will be okay, but I agree with Beth. I think everything will be changed. And what I hold on to is that it will be changed uh, for, the, for the good of the world. Yeah. And hopefully we get to go back to live shows soon. Indeed. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Jenna. Thank you for, um, for your interest. Thanks, yeah, of course.